Well, the questions are getting more subtle and complex as the retreat goes on. I've arranged some of them, and I'll read them together if they're around the same theme. First one is, are sati and resting in awareness the same? If not, what is their relationship or the difference? I've never heard of the term awareness being mentioned in Theravada texts. Is there a Pali word for it? Where is it discussed? Is this an example of the westernization, Americanization of Buddha's teachings? Is the energy of awareness separate, different from awareness? Is it separate, different from the energy of body-mind? Please expound. Overall, using the phrase, rest in the awareness, goes much further than transitive verbs in eliminating meanness in instructions. Much more clear. It can be a little confusing because we use different words and expressions um, often to mean similar things and sometimes even the same thing, but perhaps highlighting one or another aspect. So as a general guideline, you could think of sati or mindfulness and resting in awareness as being the same. The phrase resting in awareness suggests particular kind of sati or particular aspect, and that is the very receptive side. So it's not so much the mind going out to the object as that that side of mindfulness which is receiving the object. One of the meanings of sati which really brings these two phrases together, of sati and resting in awareness. And this is a very traditional and classical meaning of sati. It means undistracted. And I find that useful because it suggests that the distracted mind is the mind that's doing something and that the non-doing of mind is resting in awareness. It's undistracted. When it's not moving, it's resting in this state, this very receptive state of awareness. There's another aspect to sati and awareness, which I think could be useful to understand. And it's talked about both in the Tibetan tradition and in the Theravada Vipassana tradition, In the Tibetan tradition, they talk of fabricated and unfabricated mindfulness. And in the Theravada tradition, it's called prompted and unprompted kinds of consciousness. And it really means when a certain quality is not well developed, it needs prompting, it needs fabrication, it needs some effort. When it's well-established, well-recognized, well-stabilized, then it becomes unfabricated. It becomes unprompted. It doesn't need that effort in order to be with it. And so this is part of the natural development. So in all these ways, resting in awareness and mindfulness are about the same thing, but they can be seen from... different aspects or different sides. What's the difference, if any, between the content of a fantasy and the content of a memory? (laughs) When I read that, I was... I think the content of a memory is about what did happen, and the content of a fantasy is about what we'd like to happen. But other than that, there's really not much difference (laughs) in terms of relating to them. They're both simply thought appearances in the mind. And the question is whether we're resting in the awareness of the fact that they've arisen, 
or are we lost in it? Are we lost in the memory? Are we lost in the fantasy? You know, taking birth in that particular mind realm for however long? Or are we resting in the awareness and simply seeing this thought form, whether fantasy or memory, simply come and go? You know, a few days ago there was a question about <clears throat> thoughts and thinking in the morning. Suzuki Roshi, in his book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, with his characteristic simplicity you know, and incisiveness, I think gave a very great teaching on this. He said, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Let them come and let them go. So we're not trying to get rid of thoughts. We're not trying to suppress them. We're not trying to hold on to them or to continue them. Don't be bothered by your thoughts. Let them come and go. They're simply arising and passing away. Of course, that's easier said than done because thoughts are so seductive. You know, and so we get caught up a lot. Our practice is simply to come back to awareness of the fact that we're thinking. It doesn't imply any negative relationship to the thought at all, which then simply becomes more aversion or judgment. Can you be with a thought in the same way that you're with a sound? Then it's simple. The sounds come and go. For the most part, we're not bothered by them, although some of the notes have been about particular sounds that are bothersome. <laughs> but mostly we just let the sound appear and disappear. But because there's a quality of impingement, we recognize it usually quite easily and quite quickly. Thoughts don't impinge in the same way. They're much more subtle, and so they slide in. Often we're not aware of them. My question is about hypocrisy. For weeks I was appalled at my own hypocrisy. Now I've become quite used to it. <laughs> what does this indicate? <laughs> Spiritual maturity or deepening deception? <laughs> I think it really depends on what getting quite used to it means. If it's in the sense of seeing the hypocrisy or any other kalesa in the mind, if it means being able to see it without judgment and yet with discernment, so that we recognize clearly, yes, this is what it is. This is hypocrisy, this is ill will, this is hatred, this is fear, this is whatever. If we can see it, recognize it, discern it with wisdom, if getting used to it means all that, then that really is spiritual maturity. Because we're no longer strengthening Mara through the self-condemnation that comes from reacting against these states. You know, and this is a, this is a great trick of Mara. These states come, I'm so bad, look at me, I have all these defilements. All of that is about I. You know, and we justify or strengthen that sense of I with the rationale that these are unwholesome states. But that's a complete misuse, a misunderstanding of the practice. The purpose is not to see them in order to judge ourselves, because that's just strengthening, strengthening the ego. It's learning to see them all and to be aware without self-judgment at all, seeing that they themselves are more empty, passing states of mind. If, on the other hand, getting used to these states suggests, or the experience of it is a kind of condoning of them, 
you know, oh, look at all this hypocrisy, and it no longer shocks us, but I guess that's just how I am. And, you know, and we, we're not seeing sort of the unskillful nature of that mind state, and because of that, we're continuing to indulge them. So that is not particularly spiritual maturity. Now that, that is another kind of deception. So it's not, a, it's not a matter of rationalizing. It's a matter of seeing with clarity, with acceptance, with non-identification, not creating a sense of self in them, not buying into them. It's interesting that for many of us, the wholesome states of mind seem more to be the prompted ones, and the unwholesome states of mind seem to be the unprompted. (laughs) They seem to come quite easily, (laughs) quite spontaneously. We don't have to make much effort to feel aversion (laughs) or to feel desire. They, They just come. Regarding thoughts and intentions, if one has an unwholesome thought arise, an inappropriate sexual urge, for example, perhaps we just see it and it passes immediately. But sometimes the mind can flip almost instantly into a deep fantasy, and it feels like it's against our own will, one's own will. Or perhaps one consciously indulges in a bit of fantasy, fully aware that there is no intention of actualizing it. Does time spent or mental, ener- or mental energy invest the thought with karmic potential? Is awareness of what is happening the key to diffusing this potential? Or does it still condition the mind for further arisings of this nature? Of course, this has never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think, Steve? (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) I think it very much has to do with the level of identification, you know, with any kind of thought, you know, or fantasy that we have. If we're identified with it, if we're lost in it to some extent, if we are investing it with energy, it has some karmic potential. If it's not acted on, either in, through speech or through action, it's quite weak. And so I wouldn't become all anxious you know, about having been lost in fantasies for some time. But I think it is helpful to see that this investing or identifying with them does condition the mind. It habituates the mind to its arising again. It's really by being able to step out or or to rest in awareness and to see that fantasy come and go without getting hooked by it, without getting caught by it. That's what deconditions that particular habit. In some way, I think we could think of our mind, of this play of mind that we experience you know, in practice, as just the playing out of habits. You know, over this lifetime and perhaps infinite lifetimes, we've established these grooves in the mind, whether it's grooves of generosity, grooves of love, grooves of lust, grooves of fear, whatever. And it becomes necessary to be mindful enough, aware enough, settled back enough so that we can begin to discern which are skillful, which are worth investing in, which are not, which cause suffering, which can I simply let go. It's not a question of judging. It's not a question of getting reactive. It's simply saying, this is not leading any place particularly helpful. Can I let it go?
There are a lot of different um, strategies for letting something go. You know, and some of them are more dynamic and some are more receptive, some are more investigative. You know, on, on, the, on the receptive side, it really is the sense, and often this happens with either thoughts or particular emotions, we really want to get uh, open to that place of uh, accepting, let me feel this. And so to bring the awareness to it with a, with a great sense of softness and openness and acceptance. Sometimes we want to investigate very precisely how the thing is perpetuating itself. I'll just give you one example of this, and I, I can't remember whether I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's, a useful, it's a useful thing to do. This happened quite a few years ago. I was on retreat, a self-retreat here at IMS, and I was having this one sexual fantasy over and over and over again. You know, and I could just, my mind was getting pulled into it. So at a certain point, the fantasy became less interesting than the fact that I was getting pulled into it again and again. And I really wanted to see, well, what's, why is that? What's happening? How is it happening? And I reflected on and applied just one aspect of this teaching on dependent origination, you know, those, the 12 links, with the key links in this case being contact, feeling, desire. This contact, contact was with an image, an image arose in my mind. So there was that moment of contact. In that very moment, along with that contact was the pleasant feeling. As long as I was not noting, not aware of the pleasantness, when I wasn't mindful of that contact pleasant pair, just in an instant, the mind was pulled in to the fantasy, into the desire, and then it just you know, played itself out. But when I could apply the awareness, apply the mindfulness, to actually see, not theoretically, this is not an intellectual exercise, this is to actually experience in the moment of contact with that mental image, in that very moment to experience mindfully the pleasantness associated with that contact. Pleasant, pleasant. And again, this is, this is not mechanical, this is really seeing something very precisely by being mindful of the pleasantness we're not identified with it. And so it doesn't have the power to pull us into the desire. And it's precisely for this reason that the Buddha talked about this is the place to break the chain of conditioning. Contact feeling, when we're not mindful, carries us away. When we are mindful at that point, you know, you can see, you can, you can, it's like you can almost visualize this. Contact feeling arises in a moment of mindfulness. We are not lost in it. We're not identified with it. We're simply aware. We have a pleasant feeling. And that pleasant feeling comes and goes, and the mind is clear. So this is an investigative method. There's another method, which I used at times, with similar type fantasies. One time... I, it was just the same one. <laughs> I don't know how many times it came back. So finally, and I had tried, you know, different things. So in this particular situation, I think this was a, a different retreat, I remember, it's like I took my, that Manjushri sort of wisdom, and just, okay, enough. You know, with a real kind of resoluteness and... Strength, just like cutting it. Okay, enough of this. You know, and coming back. And sometimes we can do that. You know, often we emphasize being soft, being receptive, being nice. being. <laughs> but there's another side, too. We can really be, you know, come from that place of strength sometimes. You know, and resoluteness and warrior-like quality. The key in that, and there's a danger, 
the danger is that it can come from a place of aversion. Right? So that's, that's when we're going too far in the wrong way. But there can be strength without aversion. There can be a determination, okay, enough. I don't have to indulge this again and again. You know, and so to find that place in the mind as well. It's all skillful means. Now, it's not that there's any, this is the right way or this is the right way. It's all skillful means for coming back to rest in awareness, for getting unhooked. With regard to question asked this morning about sitting with unpleasant sensations, if we perceive a situation to be unpleasant, aren't we already relating to it with aversion? Or are there some things which are inherently unpleasant? Is the experience of being cool by, nat- by nature unpleasant, or is it unpleasant because we are averse to feeling cold? According to the Buddha's teachings, we experience pleasant or unpleasant as the calm, in, in any situation as the karmic result of past actions, which is why some people could experience the very same thing. Some people will experience it as being pleasant, some people experience unpleasant. So it's not that that pleasantness or unpleasantness is inherent in the object, but it is inherent in our perception of it due to our past karma. It's a karmic result. But that is not a necessary condition for aversion, and it's not because we have aversion that we feel it as unpleasant. And I think you've had the experience, hopefully, at least sometimes, of being with unpleasant feelings, whether painful feelings in the body, or painful emotions, or unpleasant sound, with equanimity. Where we're aware that it's unpleasant, and yet there's no aversion to it in the mind at all. It's, it's just unpleasantness. So I would be careful about linking in your mind the sense that unpleasantness means we're aversive to the object, because it doesn't. Okay, there's there are a whole bunch of questions now. Would you define pride and humility as differentiated from self-worth and unworthiness? Also, what to do when pride or unworthiness arises? I grew up with very little sense of I, resulting in low self-esteem in most of my young adult life. The suffering of a fragmented self brought me to the practice. The practice has since helped me to piece myself together But now I have to work on the non-self part again. Certainly is quite confusing at times. (laughs) Please shed light on the subject. Does healing the relative self go in tandem with the realization on the absolute non-self? Or is it like you must be somebody first before you can be nobody? How does conventional psychological thought about the healthiness of self-esteem, not ego, and assertiveness, not aggressiveness, compare with the Buddhist way of life. I can approach these questions from a couple of different angles. The the issues of psychological health and the language often we use for that is self-esteem, self-acceptance, feeling of worthiness. That's... What that has to do with is not 
connected to what in the Buddhist language is called self. And so it gets a little confusing because we're using the same words to mean quite different things. The Buddhist use of the word self is about some unchanging core in here to whom experience is happening. And the belief that that unchanging core exists throughout this life and perhaps from life to life. And this is what the Buddha was saying is not to be found. The questions of psychological health, of self-esteem, is not about the view of some solid entity. One thing it's about is developing an openness to and an acceptance of all the different parts of our experience. What keeps us fragmented? What creates that feeling of fragmentation in our lives? It's when there's part of our experience which for whatever reason, for whatever reason, we're not allowing. We don't like it, shadow side, it's unacceptable to us. And so there's a big part of what actually is in our experience which we're cut off from. So there's that sense of inner fragmentation. Both in terms of psychological health and in terms of the meditative process, what we want to do is settle back into awareness and open ourselves to the whole range of what's there. And as you well know by now, sometimes it means opening to some painful aspects of experience. Painful emotions, painful memories, painful thoughts. Sometimes, sometimes it's completely outrageous. I mean, the, the stuff that the mind can produce, dredge up, relive. I don't know, you probably have had this experience sometimes on retreat. It can happen both in the sitting practice, but also in the dream. The dreams can often get so intense and so vivid and so out there. You know, where is this stuff coming from? I mean, really horrible stuff. De degrading. Sometimes I would wake up on retreat and I just couldn't believe. <laughs> it's true. I, and yet, there it is. <laughs> so, our path of wholeness, both on the psychological level, the psychological-emotional level, and on the meditative level, in this way is the same. It's being willing and having the courage, you know, in, in the proper way. Okay, just let me see. Let me see all these sides. Of course, this is facilitated to the degree that we have some glimmer of wisdom that none of this stuff belongs to me. That it's just stuff arising out of conditions. Because of this, this, and this, this appears. That's what's happening. It's just a play of conditions. And we're all conditioned very differently. So we have different appearances come. But none of them refer back to anybody. If we can combine the wisdom, this understanding of selflessness, of emptiness, with the metta, the loving kindness of acceptance, of acceptance of the whole range of what happens, then we come to a real place of balance. You know, there's that first question about pride and humility and self-worth and worthlessness, unworthiness. 
There was just a few things come to mind with that. Uh, there was this writer by the name of Wei Wu Wei. He wrote many books. He's, he's actually an Englishman who lived in China, but very immersed in Buddhist Taoist tradition. He had a wonderful aphorism about humility. And it really just strikes to the core of this whole issue. He said, humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. Now, it's not that humility is a stance that we then identify with. Oh, I'm really humble. (laughs) Humility is simply, and in its simplicity, the absence of anyone to be proud. When we really understand this absence of self, it really, it really addresses this issue of pride and humility. It takes the reference point out of it. The Dalai Lama had a wonderful teaching about unworthiness. And I think it actually was when he visited here, although I don't remember exactly. But somebody asked him a question about feeling unworthy. And he gave a most unexpected answer, unexpected response, just with the most compassion you know, in, his, in his manner. He looked at this person and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And it was kind of a bit of a shock. But he was really pointing to the fact that the nature of the mind is awareness in everybody. It's not that some people have it and some people don't. And that unworthiness is a conditioned feeling. That feeling of unworthiness comes because of certain conditions, but it it does not represent the true nature of mind at all. And so he was being quite forceful there. I mean, he really was using his sword of wisdom. He was really saying in a very forceful way, don't become identified, don't identify yourself with this conditioned feeling, because this is not the nature of the mind. It's simply an arising conditioned event. So again, it's not, to, it's not to judge it, it's not to condemn it, it's to apply all the tools of awareness, of openness, of acceptance, but to, to really recognize, you know, for each one of us, that the nature of our mind is already pure and aware. And every, every appearance is simply a conditioned phenomenon. That changes our relationship a lot. When we, when we see this, when we connect with this, even as these conditioned feelings come of unworthiness, of self-judgment, of self-hatred, whatever they may be, It really, that understanding of the nature of awareness gives us a place of refuge from which we can observe all of these feelings as they come and go, freeing ourselves from the prison of identification with them. Of course, this is also a gradual process. It's unlikely that that's going to happen all at once. But even if we see it momentarily, that's a tremendous, that's a tremendous gift. a big pile here. Our path is described as the path of purification. What exactly is to be purified of what? How does the resolving of deep emotional knots relate to the process of purification? 
there are a lot of different ways to understand this path of purification. On one level, what's happening is we are purifying the mind of the forces, the habits, the conditioning of greed and hatred and delusion. You know, and seeing it in that way sort of highlights the, the profound simplicity of this practice. Because in every moment of mindfulness, in every moment when we are simply resting in awareness of what's arising, a sound, a thought, or an emotion, a sensation, in that moment of mindfulness, of awareness, there is no clinging, there is no condemning, there is no identification, there's no forgetting. It's so simple. In every moment of mindfulness, we are deconditioning, we are purifying the mind of those old habits. I, I want this, I like this, I don't like this, or spacing out. And so as we practice and as the mindfulness gets stronger, the greed, the hatred, the delusion continue to weaken. So that's one, one way of describing the process of purification. There's another way. And there's a classical text in the teachings where the Buddha describes sort of the path to enlightenment as uh, somebody going in relays, taking a stage, a coach, you know, to one post and then relay to the next, to the next, to the next, until one's fully enlightened. And in this discourse, he described this as the seven stages of purification. And so it's a very systematic outline of this process. This is obviously a whole long talk, but just to give the outline of it, the first stage of purification is called purification of conduct, which basically means that pu the purification that comes from observing sila, of non-harming. That's a purifying process. The second is the purification of mind, which means developing a certain degree of tranquility a certain level of concentration, because without it, the mind has no stability. And it's just continually being lost and carried away. So this is another stage of purification. The third is called purification of view. And this is really interesting, and this is a profound turning point in the practice. It's that understanding which sees that in any moment what's actually there is simply some object being known. A sound being known, a thought being known, a sensation being known, an emotion being known, a sight being known. There is no I, no self to be found there. We're not the sound. And especially framing it in this way, in terms of the passive voice of sound being known, it points to the fact that there's no I in the knowing. We're not creating, we're not doing anything. Objects arise and are known, moment after moment after moment. This is purification of view, seeing that in any moment, it's just this process of nama-rupa, objects being known. No self, no I to be found. So again, our practice in its simplicity is just this. It's resting, resting in this process. Do you see the simplicity of this? It's really about non-doing. Undistractedness. The problem is our 
the habit of our mind of doing, of becoming distracted, is so strong. And so we get pulled out of the simplicity again and again and again. Our practice is simply coming back to it. You know, you're sitting in the hall at the end, at the end of this hour. You hear the bell, a sound is known. You stand up, the movement is being known. You start walking, the sensation of walking is being known. It's all happening by itself. No I, no self to be found. This is purification of you. Then there's purification of overcoming doubt, which is another level. That has to do with seeing that things arise out of conditions. That everything is arising out of a condition. It's this understanding of cause and effect. Purification of... I forget the technical phrase, I think, uh, through vision and knowledge, which is really the very clear seeing of impermanence, of the rising, passing phenomena. The next purification I want to spend a couple of moments on, because again, it's a key turning point. And this is called the purification of seeing what is the path and what is not the path. So this is, this is really an important juncture. Just before this point, the practice has unfolded through a lot of very pleasant meditative experiences. There are times when the mind is concentrated, clear, mindful, aware, rapturous, all of that. Those factors are very strong. But the common trap is to feel that these states are what the practice is about, that this is what the path is about. I have it. But these states are also just conditioned appearances. They're wholesome states of mind. This particular level of purification to see what is the path and not the path is this very incisive understanding that the path is about the understanding that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. That's the path. It's not about having a particular state. So that's a, that's a very powerful impetus in the practice. So we're no longer striving for a state. Because any state at all is still part of the passing show. Now think of the best sitting you had this retreat. Might have been on the first day, but whenever you had it. <laughs> Where is it now? It was nice, it was wonderful, it was peaceful, it was calm, it was... Seeing what is the path and not the path really orients us in the right direction. It's about letting go and letting go and letting go. It's not about getting. That also is a tremendous relief. Okay, and then there is some further purifications where we just go through different stages of insight up to enlightenment. But this, this is another way of understanding the purification process. Okay, so how does all this tie in to the resolving of deep emotional knots? All along the way, all along this meditative path, what happens is the, the unresolved or thought-resolved <laughs> thought we had resolved, uh, things come up in terms of memories, in terms of emotions. There really is a cleaning out process that happens. Not only emotional knots, it can be the most mundane impressions. I sat for hours in India watching reruns of Father Knows Best. <laughs> the stupidest television program in the 50s. I mean, really dumb. <laughs> Somehow it was in there. You know, and I'm really grateful that it's out of there now. <laughs> so, 
So sometimes as you're sitting and often when this is happening for people, you know, sometimes people feel they get discovered, oh, my mind just doesn't stop. Well, one way of understanding it, you know, really is that it is a cleansing. It's a letting go of all this stuff, you know, that, that has been imprinted. And in fact, in a very literal way, as a result of this process, the mind does feel lighter. You know, it really is about enlightenment. It gets lighter because we're no longer holding on in some unconscious way to all of these impressions. So not only, of course, about this mundane stuff, but also the deeper emotional issues. It's the same process. To the degree that we can see whatever it is with acceptance, without aversion, without condemning, without identification, it begins to wash through. This is, there are many questions on this subject. Regarding karma, what is it that is reborn? Certainly not a self. A karmic stream, what is that? Or energy? Can you tell anything about that which leaves the body when we are dying? and that reincarnates in another being. I have understood that in Buddhism we don't talk about soul, but could you say it's something like that? It really puzzles me. As long as I am in contact with Buddhism, when the soul has gone. In the context of the Buddha's teaching of there being no self to continue from existence to existence, what is your understanding of the Tibetan belief in the reincarnation of such figures as the Dalai Lama, Karmapa, and other spiritual teachers? How can the Buddha have proclaimed to have viewed his past lives and then developed and taught the teachings of no self? It seems as if the teaching and teachers are always talking about my, his, her past lives, yet at the same time, at least and Theravada Buddhism seems to teach that there's no continuing soul, essence, or whatever, just some karmic energy. I know this is basic Buddhism 101, but I still don't get it. Given that the Buddhist belief in rebirth, as opposed to reincarnation, belief is in rebirth, I find the stories of the past lives of the Bodhisattva somewhat confusing. Surely an entity or something fixed did not continue from life to life. What is the right way to view this? Did the Buddha himself refer to his past lives? I think the most frequently asked question begins with the phrase, if there's no self, then. <laughs> you know, who's reborn? Who had past lives? Who's doing this? <laughs> and it's not easy to understand because our conventional view of things and the reality, the relative reality in which most of, all, most of us live there is a sense of self and of I, and our language uses that. So how can we make sense of it? Because the Buddha clearly referred to past lives and referred to his own past lives and the past lives of others and beings reborn. And yet he also clearly taught about selflessness, emptiness of self. But there is no self which goes from life to life. So what is it? How does this process work? Just a few, a few general comments on this. To say that there's no self is not to say 
there are a lot of double negatives in here. It's not to say that there is no continuity to the process. And so often for people there's a confusion because when they hear no self, somehow they assume then there's no continuity to the unfolding. There is continuity. Okay, so let's just take a few examples. Did you ever see a baby picture of yourself? You look at that picture. (laughs) Completely different. (laughs) (laughs) Completely different in body, completely different in mind. And yet not disconnected from who we are now. Completely different, yet not disconnected. There's no part of that baby which has stayed the same. All the cells have changed and all the... I mean, everything on whatever level. The, the, the movement of the electrons and the... I don't know all this stuff, but you know. <laughs> the most fundamental aspects of the material, the physical world. It's all in movement. There's nothing static any place to be found. And there's certainly, as we know from our direct experience, nothing static in the mind. It's all continuously changing, moment after moment after moment. And yet, the process is unfolding lawfully. And that's the element of continuity. Because of this, this arises. Because of this, this arises. Because of this, this arises. So there's no one element which is carried, and that's what's meant by selflessness. It means there's no static element which is carried throughout the whole process. But it doesn't mean that there is no continuity to the process. Okay, just another example. You know, you plant a seed in the ground, and the seed grows and becomes a sapling, becomes a tree, and bears fruit, and the fruit has new seed, and new sapling, new tree, new fruit. You could follow that whole process along. That seed, that first seed, is not somehow miraculously carried up through the trunk into the tree, into the fruit. No. It's that... It's a process of continuous transformation... The seed becomes this, becomes this, becomes this, becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. This is the process of transformation that is continuously going on lawfully, depending on the physical laws of nature, depending on laws of karma. That's what determines this or, or, or describes this process of conditioning. When we look, when we really look carefully, we see that it's not happening to anyone. That what we call self is this process of transformation. And so when the Buddha would look back at past lives, it's not so different than us looking back at our past in this life. You know, we can have memories of experiences from the past. But that doesn't mean that anything from the past has come along unchanged in this process. Question about, you know, the some highly developed spiritual beings like the Karmapa or the Dalai Lama. Some beings, it's said, and we're, we're all equally reborn. So it's not that they have any special uh, rebirth rights. <laughs> it's just that with a high degree of development, so it's said, 
beings can actually predict or even determine where the next birth will take place, depending on you know, the power of the intentionality. Just one or two more. Is Vipassana a practice for understanding the self and general human condition with resulting benefits for self and others? Or does it also open one to a transcendent experience of God and thereby become a spiritual or religious practice? I think this is a really important question. Because sometimes I think people people can limit their understanding of the practice and the Dharma and sort of make it a a branch of humanistic psychology. In the sense of, yeah, we can actually become better people in the sense of kinder, more loving, less judgmental. And all of that's true. And and I think all of us have experienced it to some extent. But that doesn't plumb the depths of really what this practice is about. to come in from. Now we've talked before about the importance of seeing the practice as the union of the relative and absolute levels. So on the relative level, we are working with developing wholesome qualities of mind, abandoning the unwholesome ones. On a more absolute level, we are talking about I don't know if transcendental is exactly the right word because it is at the same time transcendent transcendent and imminent. It is about coming to that place And here's where language begins to fail. And the traditions, the different traditions, use many different words for this. But it is about the opening to the unborn, the unformed, nirvana, the uncreated. These are all words. They're all different words for the same thing. It's really to come to that place or that realization of enlightenment, of awakening, of freedom. There's a, and there were, there were a few questions about enlightenment, and uh, maybe before the end of the course, just kind of systematize uh, just a whole talk on what this is about, because in some way it really is at the center, it's at the heart of our practice. You know, what we're doing in the most fundamental way is about awakening, not just about feeling better. Well, just a, just a, a word on the unborn or the uncreated. Thomas Merton did a rendition of some poems by Chuang Tzu, the great Taoist sage. And one of them is called uh, Starlight and Non-Being. 
And if I can find it, at some point I'll bring and read the whole poem. But it's about starlight going in search of non-being. And then kind of starlight goes out to the universe looking for non-being. And Chuang Tzu just describes the difficulties starlight has in finding non-being. And the last two lines of this little poem are, if on top of all this, non-being is, who can... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.